The Be Here Now Network invites you to join Jack Kornfield, Tara Brock, and some of today's leading mindfulness meditation instructors for a two-year mindfulness meditation teacher certification program. Get the training you need to guide others in their journey with a powerful online training course and in-person teaching events. To learn more, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash GetCertified. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. Welcome to the Ramdas Here and Now podcast. I'm your host, Raghu Marcus. Well, fast forward to spring of 1972. In our ongoing journey with Ramdas, and uh, at that time, uh, the kind of the first wave of people that had been in India, living with Maharaji, chasing him around India, anyhow, uh, came back for various reasons. Most of them really were visa problems, because you had to have a visa, uh, as you still do, to go to India. Um, but we never thought that we'd be coming back for more than a short time, get... Uh, get our health back a little bit, and get a new visa and be back in India. And not for one second did we imagine that uh, Maharaji wouldn't be there. In fact, the last time that we saw him, it was in a place called Brindavan, south of New Delhi, where Krishna, all those stories about Krishna take place. And... uh, in fact, one of the Westerners said to him, you know, we're going back home and you're not going to be here when we come back. I guess you had some kind of premonition. And he said, where would I go? Of course I will be here. And that had multiple meanings. And sure enough, a year later, approximately in a few months, in 1973, Neem Karoli Baba, as we knew him as uh, Maharaji, left that particular body. And, of course, that set us all, we all went back to India then, Ramdas included, whoever wasn't there at the time, Krishnadas wasn't there, so he, he all also went back with us. And, um, and then we came back to America and settled down into some imagination of a life um, without being with that physical body, which we were tremendously attached to, of course, one can imagine. And um, it was actually during the time that um, when Ramdas came back, of course, he continued to lecture and continued to talk about Maharaji, and continued to turn many people on to the existence of this being. And many of them, although they did not get to see him for one reason or another, uh, that was just about a year uh, from the point that he had come back to the point where Maharaji had left, uh, many of them, oh, they 
got as connected as those of us that had uh, been there in the body. But that's a whole other subject that uh, we'll talk about on another podcast. Meanwhile, in 1974, so I was looking for material to share with you all and um, came across some pretty interesting things that really have to do with uh, this kind of what we're doing right now, this kind of podcast. And, and uh, um, Ramdas had done uh, some radio at the time. Um, but uh, in 1974, when Nixon was being impeached and the Watergate trials were going on, Ramdas, myself, and uh, a couple of other people, including my my wife at the time, we sat and created a box set of CD, not CD, <laughs> that was in a dream then, of LPs called Love, Serve, Remember, which is the name of the foundation that now is the um, um, basis of which Ramdas does his work from. And uh, it runs uh, ramdas.org, which encompasses this particular podcast. And um, so we sat in an apartment in New York City during this whole event. And it was a memorable moment. Of course, it was memorable for many people who were who were uh, had grown up at that time. And uh, part of this radio, uh, uh, part of the, the LP set were these um, radio shows that Ramdas did, I think it was at WBAI at the time. And part of what he did was take questions from people. So I found some of these uh, recordings that we have uh, digitized and uh, started listening to them. Boy, there was some pretty interesting stuff. And it would be wonderful to get feedback from those of you that are, that are listening. Um, I mean, these, some of this stuff is dated, but, you know, in terms of the questions, for instance, there's one question that talks about mass suffering and how to deal with that and what that, how does that, how do we integrate that into our, into our lives relative to just pushing it away, it's way over there, or developing compassion, doing what we can in, in our local areas in any way that would relieve suffering. And Ramdas talks about this, but the references are, if I remember, one of them was Biafra, where there was tremendous at that time, which is early 70s, uh, starvation. And isn't that happening, but in other areas now. So although there are references that are dated, the questions are extraordinary, extraordinarily relevant. Um, the first one talks about, somebody was talking about how do you reconcile making a living, money, and spiritual work. And uh, Ramdas tells a beautiful story um, about his dialogue with his father about Be Here Now. Because Be Here Now was put out for $3.33. And in it was a pie chart which showed how all of this money was being distributed. It was all out front. Ramdas absolutely wanted this to be completely transparent, which 
it ended up being. And it was also a very uh, odd-shaped book for the time, even now. And in fact, uh, in my own dealing with, uh, uh, on Ramdas's behalf, uh, with the publisher who wanted to update uh, Be Here Now, because of the shape of the book and because he had wanted that price kept down and it kept down, although it did rise over the years, it's still way cheaper than most books are at this point. Uh, they, they can't even reprint it because it's, uh, they made a deal which, uh, doesn't presume too much profit for them. Extraordinary when you think about it. So that's one of the questions. And then another one, um, is about uh, somebody's uh, family member getting busted for marijuana and going to jail in Texas for something like 10 years for a joint. You know, now maybe that doesn't happen so much these days, although um, it does happen, especially in places, unfortunately, like Texas or in the Deep South. So, and Ramdas has spent a lot of time in his life um, trying to make, get consciousness to prisoners and he's had a prison ashram program that he's been involved with, had been involved with uh, for many many years and he talks about this and it's highly important stuff if anybody has any friend who is incarcerated um, or even just dealing with the kind of suffering that puts you in four walls that you can't seem to get out of so uh, really important stuff I was uh, um I'm always glad to find these things. Um, I mean, I was part of creating this uh, way back then. And, of course, it's been a long time since I've listened to, to any of these talks, or in this case, these uh, the, this radio show that he did on BAI. So here is, uh, I think there's three different questions that uh, let me know how you all think. Is, uh, is it relevant in our lives, in the culture that we're in right now? You can write me at info at ramdas.org. And here is Ramdas. What is your feeling about the relationship between money and spiritual work? Ah. Uh, hmm. Well, I can answer it best by a delightful um, thing that happened to me recently. Um, I was having a talk with my father, whom I love very dearly, and um, he heard that I was doing uh, records for cost, involved with records for cost, and trying to lower the price of Be Here Now, and not charging, you know, not collecting any personal money for lectures and stuff. And he said to me, what's the matter, you against capitalism? And I said, uh, no, I think it's wonderful for you. It just doesn't happen to be my trip at the moment. He says, I don't understand you. So then I got a brainstorm. I said to him, uh, didn't you just try a case for Henry, your brother-in-law? He says, yeah. I said, did you win it? He says, you bet I did. And he says, it was an interesting case. And he went into quite a description of how he had won this case. I said, wow, that's impressive. Did you charge him a big fee? And he says, of course not. He's my brother-in-law. I said to him, well, that's my predicament. Everybody's my brother-in-law. That who am I going to charge the big fee to? Who am I going to rip off? Who am I going to treat as them in order to collect certain money? That is, as my spiritual works evolved, 
I'm looking at the space where everybody's us. I'm living in it. And the economics of a place where everybody's us is entirely different from the economics where it's us against them or there's them out there. Right? So that I don't think uh, things like about Buddhist livelihood and so on are best done from the level of reading an instruction and then trying to do it out of ought. I think the general rule is as you work on yourself and get less and less attached to your own specialness, the, your economics changes as a result of that, rather than I ought to do this or I ought not to charge. Because a lot of people, I can feel that they're not quite cooked because they will, they'll do a spiritual thing, but they'll do it in such a way that it creates economic hardship on themselves or someone else. And I see that they're creating as much karma by being anti earning a living as they are from the profit, being anti-profit, you know, that they haven't yet understood right livelihood, which seems to me to be, it's all within the flow, and that, that you know, that people should share the economic burdens for various transmissions and for various products and so on. But the game of getting as much as you can from another person by treating them as an object, uh, that game doesn't hold up as you become more conscious. Um, I think the prescription, the simple prescription is you keep as much money, or you make as much money ultimately, as you need to maintain your body, which is the temple for doing the inner work, and for fulfilling your existing responsibilities, which exist on many, many levels, of course, including your responsibility not only to family and country and religion and all those, but also to uh, your own spiritual work. That's also one of your responsibilities. And beyond that, all money's given away. Okay? And so with that model in mind, you begin to see how you're using your money, where it's coming from, you know. Um, is that dealing with your question? Yes, thank you. Okay. Bob Ramdas? Yeah. How are you doing? Hi. How does a person living in the spirit deal with external evil? Um, well, uh, the, uh, the way in which it's perceived, first of all, I understand evil as that which increases illusion or paranoia or separateness or separates or increases the multiplicity. Um, uh, and you can really redefine most of your evil terms and they work in that, in that definition. Good is that which unifies, awakens, brings to consciousness and relieves human suffering, which is the same thing in a way. Um, uh, I also see that the game is designed perfectly and that at the level where good exists, so does evil. And this polarity uh, reinforces itself in a way and it exists at a plane where polarities are. And so that you can look at the act itself and then impose the just the statement good or evil depending on its function or its effect and you learn more and more that acts per se are neither good or evil but rather the attachments of the people that are performing the acts that determine whether they're good or evil it's not the people that are good or evil it's the attachments that are good or evil and behind every evil act is another being just like you and i it's just a being who's caught in a karma that's leading them to perform out of their attachments an act which has evil consequences, which is increasing illusion. As far as what do you do about it, you reward and punish good and evil. You recognize both good and evil as existing in the universe, uh, 
But as you become more conscious, less and less are you able to do things which would be defined as evil. Not because you think you shouldn't do them because you're afraid of somebody striking you dead, but just because you can't do them because it's too absurd. I mean, if I think you and I are us instead of you're him or them, how can I steal from you? I don't steal from us. I may steal from them, but I'm not going to steal from us. See? And the predicament is that with increasing consciousness, more and more of the time, you're living at the plane where you see us beings hanging out on this earth, on this world, you know, this little round sphere. And less and less can you think of them as them Vietnamese or them, them in Washington or anybody, any thems at all, you know. More and more, they're just us doing all these weird, far-out things. And uh, those things which limit human freedom and increase illusion, you work to get rid of. And I think ultimately that's the way you deal with good and evil. You do it because that's your incarnation to do it. At the same moment, recognizing that all that exists functionally. Suffering exists, evil exists, wars exist, pestilence, starving. You work full-time to end them all. At the same moment, you know that that's why they're there, because they're supposed to be there. And that's one of the paradoxes that people have the hardest time with. Seeing that it's all perfect and then understanding social responsibility. And that's the ability, the wisdom to be able to live with two levels of consciousness simultaneously. To work full-time knowing that it's perfect when you began and perfect when you ended. And that your working full-time was perfect too. In the Book of Tokens, it says, if you know not that the Prince of Darkness is but the other face of the King of Light, you know not me. To me, it's obvious there's only one. And all law comes out of that one. And the two comes out of the one. And because two comes out of one, good and evil, or dark and light, or the Prince of Darkness, that's all comes out of the one. And the one is the law. That's the law. That's the first commandment. Thou shalt only love the one. The little bit I've been able to grok or grasp or feel of the universe has always, the law has unfolded in its exquisiteness. And it's, it boggles, of course, the mind, because the mind is merely a little sub-product of this law. And the law isn't logical. The law is full of paradoxes, because it's, quote, the natural law or the Tao. And... Uh, uh, so in that sense, it's all perfect. It's all lawful. It's all happening just according to plan, including what we have to do about it, right? Those are the two levels. Those are the two levels. Hello? Oh, yes, well, I would just like to uh, question uh, Baba Das when he says uh, the common, den common denominator is, uh, is being. Um, but there are levels of being, and there are some people that you can never strip the roles, the roles of hostility. Uh, for instance, um, on the 1st of May of this year, a cousin of mine, a girl, will be spending the fifth year of a 35-year uh, sentence in Texas, in Beaumont, for possession of marijuana. Now, how is she supposed to relate to all the people around me are common beings? I mean... We have being as a common denominator, yes, but all the people around me hate me. You know, I mean, right here and now, when you're faced with hostility, how can you possibly, you know, say we are all, we are all one part of a, part of a vast, vague being? Mm -hmm. I've been reflecting on this a lot uh, in many ways. Uh, 
in relation to prisons, for example, in that um, um, I carry on a long correspondence with many, many people who are in prison all over the world now, and I would be happy to carry on a correspondence with your sister as well, by the way. I've reflected on the fact that being in prison, especially um, in, in a way of uh, being in prison because of cultural mores, like your, um, your cousin obviously is, um, puts a tremendous uh, tax on your ability to, to get beyond your own melodrama and your own suffering and use it constructively without getting lost in it and lost in your anger and your hurt and your paranoia and your self-pity and all these things. Yeah, but, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now calm down. Let me talk. Relax, okay? Yeah. Okay, right. You do the best you can to relieve the suffering. That is, you do the best you can to get your cousin out of prison. Yeah, which is nothing. Okay, now wait a minute. Don't don't be so reactive. Just hear it all. And for your cousin's work, her work is to use whatever the given conditions are of her life for her to awaken and come to God. Like a lot of my friends who have done long prison terms and who have gotten out, I found them incredibly more conscious than they ever were when they went to prison. Now, I would certainly never send anybody to prison to make them more conscious. But the fact is... They were givens, like I was recently with Huey Newton, who was put in prison and kept there for some years for, for, uh, on, for supposedly murdering somebody. And he was kept in solitary confinement for a long time. And I meet him now, and I look into his eyes, and there is absolutely a clear, lucid contact uh, with no anger, no nothing. We're just right here. We're not black man and white man. We're nothing. We're just straight. And I say to him, Huey, how'd you get so straight? And he says, well, solitary was the big thing. He said, I was in solitary, and I had to get straight through it. And I see that the worst thing they could do to him became the greatest blessing for him. Now, I, I would never lay suffering on somebody for that reason. But when somebody is given, uh, you know, the cup of poison or the bitter thing to drink, okay, you work with that. That's the way it's given. And if you get caught in the paranoia that created the problem for you, you're just staying deep in the illusion. Yeah, if, but not, not just the paranoia, but that's, I mean, uh, the life is poverty, the life is shit, the life is jail, the life is hostility. I mean, it's very hard. I wonder about the common denominator. You know, I think, I think some people might not have any, any part of being at all, you know. Because it's impossible when you run into hatred, when you, when you run into people, uh, uh, then you look at them and you finally, and you realize that there's no way that you can reason with this person as a human being, like a person like, that you know is going to inflict violence on you for no reason. And you come to the conclusion that, you know, this is another human being and maybe he's part of me, but, you know, he's going to kick the shit out of me and there's nothing I can say to him. You know, and what do you do then? I mean, sure you can say, well, I'll try to do my best to alleviate suffering for him and for me, but, you know, right then and now it hurts. Then and there it hurts, you know. How much it People hurt? waking up in the ghetto every day for year after year after uh, year after year, you know, uh, being denied, you know, basic dignity. Maybe it's false dignity, but to them it isn't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I appreciate the frustration you're experiencing and the hurt you're experiencing about the predicament of man and the paranoia and the suffering and the suffering man inflicts on man. Your anger and your frustration 
is reactive. You're reacting to the conditions in such a way that your reaction in a funny way perpetuates it. And your work on yourself is to get yourself into a position where you can see it all uh, dispassionately enough to understand what is the optimum act you can do to relieve human suffering. And if you can take a more dispassionate view of what human suffering is about, you find out that human suffering is part and parcel of philosophical materialism, which is just what you were saying is what most people are caught in. I don't have that attachment because this isn't that, I'm not that caught or identified with my body or my personality or my own particular melodrama. Now, most people are, and for most people, you do the best you can to relieve human suffering. That is, you do the best you can to get your cousin out of jail, to relieve the ghetto situation, to get more conscious politicians. You do all that. But when you examine it from a more conscious point of view yourself, you recognize that the optimum thing you can do is to extricate yourself from the kind of attachments that make you merely a reactive organism in the system. Because then, everybody that goes boo to you, you jump. And the game is finally when somebody goes boo to you, you say, I see you going boo, and here we are, all right? It's just, it's just very, very hard. Oh, uh, very in hard. In America, in urban North America. That's what's, it's called the, the fire that really burns. It's the fire of the marketplace. See, it's really easy to go off to a cave and get high and, you know, stay so high and beautiful by denying all that. But when you stay right in it, right in the marketplace and work with it, and look people in the eye and deal with poverty and deal with greed and lust and anger and impurities and politicians and paranoia and all that stuff and say, yes, 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 I see it all. All right, I understand it all. I've got to hear my part in it and do it purely and with love. That's the work. That's the fiercest work. It's the fiercest fire we can stand in. Right? Okay, I love you. You're a beautiful guy. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, send my love to your cousin, will you? I will. And if she wants to, she can send me a note through this radio station. It'll get to me. Okay. Okay, fine. Okay. Um, I can understand uh, to some extent that, that we have models of the world and the universe and how we you know, think it ought to be. And to some extent, I, I understand uh, that we're born into certain situations for for reasons, you know. Um, but the thing that I can't quite bridge this gap, you know, from from this sort of slight understanding, it, is the um, the suffering uh, that goes on in the world. You know, just this is sometimes mass suffering that goes in places like. Biafra and Bangladesh. Yeah. yeah, that's a tough one. Mm. You know, I used to sit in India, the feet of my guru, and he'd say, um, feed everybody, tell everybody to feed, and he'd say, look how we're feeding everybody. Everybody that would come to the temple would get a bag of food or a box of food, and I would be sitting there realizing that this man had incredible powers and that not 200 miles away was Bangladesh, in which hundreds of thousands of people were starving to death that day, you know? And he wasn't doing, appearing to do anything about it. And I either had a choice of saying, well, he's really a man of very limited something, or very phony, or he's just busy here, 
or he's just putting on a show of being concerned, or, and, or another thought was, he's doing it all at another level, or another thought, maybe it's not supposed to be done. That one really freaked me, see? That maybe it was right the way it was happening in Bangladesh, see? And that one I couldn't handle personally because it was too ugly in my own eyes, as a, you see? And that's really what the, um, the reading from the third Chinese patriarch is about. When you're attached to this versus that, or right versus wrong, or living versus dying, you can't understand why he's sitting there feeding us and not feeding the people in Bangladesh. It's only when you yourself are not attached to death, to the avoidance of death, that you can even hear how the laws of the universe could work, because Maharaji keeps saying, don't you understand it's all perfect? And that's a hard one for me. And I say, Biafra's perfect, Bangladesh is perfect. But I've got to realize that the perfection is not only in the Bangladesh or Biafra, but it's in the reactions it has on everybody else in the world and on the total warp and woof of things, my own confusion and revulsion and attraction and awe at the, the awful nature of the divine law that would allow that to exist, that it'd be perfect, right? Now, I live much more deeply now in uh, theories in the intuitive feeling about reincarnation, not necessarily historical reincarnation, but the idea that an entity goes on and on and on and that a human birth, this particular human birth, is but a flick. And because of that, that changes the meaning of a death for a person. I can imagine a, a million people, a million beings, needing to take a birth in which they live a very short time and they live in a, re in a holy area and they do a certain kind of simple work, right? And they all say, well, let's take birth as in Bangladesh you know, which is in then East Pakistan, uh, because uh, there'll be a war there and we'll all get wiped out and get done with that one quick, right? I mean, see, that's a far out one, see, because it's scary to do those flip arounds and to consider a meta system in which the whole thing looks reversed, in which somebody who got off, like a, a baby dies at two and you say, well, you lucky, not, oh, the poor little tyke, it didn't have a chance to live. That depends on what what vantage point you're looking at it from. That's why the Bible has such a terrible, the Old Testament has such a terrible time with interpreting who God is. And the whole story of Job. I mean, like, how can you do this? If you're such a just God, what are you being such an angry God for, right? And that's all of what the Shiva force is about in India. And the forces of decay and destruction. First of all, this physical plane seems to involve suffering. That's Buddha's first noble truth, right on. It seems to involve, everything has an element of suffering. Everything that's in time has an element of suffering because of change or decay involved in it. And uh, then Christ's statement, don't lay up your treasures where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves steal in, which means don't get stuck in the physical plane in time where it's all, where, as Buddha said, it's all suffering. I mean, that's if Christ and Buddha were talking together, right? Then um, the next thing is that as you become more conscious, you realize the Bodhisattva vow. You recognize that we are all totally interrelated and that you are working to end all suffering because that's the way of enlightenment. And you begin to see it. The way, the way I see it is that a conscious being understands that man's role in the entire dance is to relieve human suffering. That becomes your function. Once you understand the conscious function of a human, a human being, a fully human being. 
and he relieves human suffering, not because it's good to do it, because but because that's what he does. Just like a garbage truck, you pick up garbage with it, not because the garbage truck thinks it's good to pick up garbage, it's just what it does. And so you don't fulfill social responsibility out of a sense of ought or should or fear. You do it because that's what you do. Does that deal with your question? That's beautiful. Yeah. Hello. Hello. You said tonight uh, that your guru said that one, it was important. It was important to serve. And uh, to love people, and the last one was... To remember God. To remember God. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I know it's uh, a question that's uh, hard to answer just like that, but how does one get to that point? Could you talk about it a little? Well, the first way you get to it is by asking the question you just asked. That... Uh, in fact, what you're really handed are three statements which you grow into in time. So you take them at whatever level they mean something to you, at whatever level they mean something to you, and you work with them. And then as you work with them, a new level dawns, and a new level dawns. It's just a way of starting to think about your daily life. So that when you meet people, you see, uh, it's like uh, I'm sitting on a Greyhound bus, and um, reading and a guy sits down next to me and he's taking more of the seat and he's overweight and he's kind of um, sweaty and I start to pull back a little bit and then he says, "Uh, you going to Santa Fe? And I uh, am about to give one of these short answers, yep, and then go back to my book as if sort of don't bother me and I hear my guru saying, love everyone, serve everyone, and remember God. And the remember God does it to me. I think, well, this is God who's come to me as a teaching. I mean, am I caught in my attachment to what that makes me turn off this being? And so at that point, I put down the book and I say, yeah, I am going to Santa Fe. Where are you going? And I realized that my work at that moment is to find in every human being that which is the God in her or him. So that is becomes part of my uh, work and and uh, and then I have to deal with serve. Somebody asks me to do something and they're asking me out of a very uh, kind of worldly desire on their part and I say well am I supposed to fulfill that? Is that what serve means? Does it mean do anything anybody wants me to do? Or is it to serve the God in each human being? And sometimes I can say no to somebody and I understand that I'm serving them. And I have to wrestle with that all the time. What is service? What's the purest service? Who are you serving? You can't serve man and God at the same moment. And so you're listening to how you can serve the God in every human being, not necessarily the worldly illusion that each person is caught in. But that's a very subtle thing, and that's why these three instructions are so beautiful, because they keep you working all the time to understand what they mean. And so you're asking the question, is the work on them? Can you hear all that? Oh, yes, I hear it. Yeah, I'm hearing it too, as if for the first time. It's beautiful. It's fun. I'm glad you asked that. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Good night. Good night. This podcast has been brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. 
We appreciate all the support for the Foundation and for Ramdas's work, and we hope that you will continue that support. You can go to ramdas.org and click on the Donate Now button and follow the prompts. Thank you.